0: Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Well, one thing about Church 214 is we keep it real here. We're, we're regular folk. And uh, one thing about regular folk is that the uh, the teaching team, pastoral team, are moms and dads. And when you're moms and dads, you hold toddlers during worship. And when you hold toddlers during worship, they wipe their bacon-laden hands all over your new shirt that you got for church. So if you see shininess on my shirt, that's uh, bacon gouda. Courtesy of Starbucks. (laughs) Yeah, at least it's bacon. (laughs) Well, the year was 2009. Uh, Heidi and I had been married for a couple of years. And I had recently started a new job. We were a part of a new church. And it was an exciting time and season in our life. Uh, My job was going well. Church was going well. It It was just lots of things were happening. And one of the things that was happening was I was experiencing somewhat of a renaissance, so to speak, in my spiritual life. And so I was being challenged uh, weekly to invite people to to be more confident in my faith and share it with other people, not being apologetic about it. And so it was just a really, really good season. And as I mentioned, we started. I started a new job. And one of the reasons that I went to this new job was because I knew the the owner of this company, it was a small family-owned business, and I knew him to be a guy of great character, great morals, uh, all indications pointed to the fact that he was a Christ follower, and it was, like I said, a family-owned organization, and so I was excited about that, and I wanted to be a part of that. The thing is, though, with leaders is that leaders can't be everywhere all the time. And so if you own a business or you lead an organization, while you might have a stance on something, that's not to say that it gets pushed all the way down through your organization. And so shortly after I started in this new job, I realized that while everything that I knew about the owner of this company was in fact true, his stances on things didn't get pushed down to the belly of the organization, which to be honest is where I was at. And one thing, one particular trait that I found in great abundance with my coworkers was their inclination to swear. Um, they were generally good guys, but when I say swear, I mean every other word probably was something that you wouldn't even repeat in the locker room, let alone in a professional environment. And so I, before I finish my story, though, I would be remiss if I did not be fully honest with you and that is to say I generally don't struggle with pride I don't think I generally don't struggle with greed or desiring other things that other people have I don't struggle with lying but if you have a conversation with me chances are at some point if you know me long enough an off-color word might make its way into the conversation so one thing that I struggle with, and I, I'll be honest, I pray about it often, asking God to, to kind of break me of this. But when you work in an industry like I work with, where 99.9% of the, guy, of the people you work with are guys, it's not something that comes easily. And so in the event that hopefully you don't think less of me or my character um, because of sharing that with you, I did. I got this shirt. I saw this shirt. A year ago, and as soon as I saw it, I said, i got to have that shirt. So I bought this shirt just for you. When I saw this shirt, when I saw this shirt, I thought, there has never been a t-shirt that could so succinctly sum up my personality as that shirt. You want to see it again? All right. I mean, how could a shirt summarize a personality in in like one sentence? But that was me. And so the point is, is that I love Jesus. I pursue him every day. I want to be better every day. But the one thing that I struggle with sometimes is an off-color word. And so I share this with you because, you know, I would think the same thing with you. If you're having a conversation with me and on the off chance you share an off-colored word, you know, call somebody a bad name uh, Lent liquor or <laughs> pompous swamp or whatever your version of a funny word is, I will generally understand that you love Jesus, you love that person, but honestly, your normal words just aren't getting the point across. <laughs> well, as it was, so I share that I share that with you because I generally do not get upset about swear words. You can. You can say a lot of things around me and and I'm not going to get too upset about it. But as it was in this new job, man, it wasn't just the swear words. It was the specific swear words that were being shared. And the specific swear words were my God's name being used in a violent, offensive way, almost with like you, you probably know these people. Sometimes they'll swear and they'll use God's name almost almost with like disdain, just like with a hatred and I would joke around with him. I'd be like, man, dude, you can say any word you want, but don't say that word. Do not say Jesus' name in vain. Do not call upon my God in such an offensive way. If you want to call, call your mom something, call I mean, call whatever. Like you don't believe in Jesus, so why would you even call on his name in such an offensive way? And so time progresses on, conversations happen, The swearing stops for a little while, and then it comes back. And so it got to the point where, man, I was just like, dude, I I have to do something about this. I just, like, I can't sit by and let this go unchallenged. And so one day, I'm sitting in my cubicle, and swear words are being dropped left and right. And for whatever reason, I I still, I thought about this when I was coming up with the story. I had an arrow in my cubicle. And I don't know why I had an arrow. So... Carbon arrow about this long, very flimsy. And so I told the dude next to me, I go, James, if you say that one more time, I'm going to hit you with this arrow. (laughs) And it just came out. And he kind of laughed at me, kind of looked at me like, okay, man. And he said it again. And before I even knew it, I grabbed the arrow. And I I won't say that I hit him as hard as I could, but I hit him pretty hard. And the whole office kind of was like, well, what just happened? And I am not advocating violence in (laughs) any way. This is generally not the best approach when getting people to turn turn towards Jesus. But in this instance, in this season, in this relationship, in that environment it worked. He stopped doing it. And I think that it clicked with him like, hey, this guy is serious about this. And so we're in this series about Daniel, counterculture. And we're just kind of looking at how do we live in a culture, in my instance, where, man, it's perfectly acceptable to use God's name in vain. It's perfectly acceptable to Say Jesus' name in a way that is highly offensive, but yet nobody thinks anything of it. So we're in this series on counterculture. So last week, Phil started off with the Daniel chapter, chapters 1 through 3. And can I just say, if you were not here last week, Phil's message was incredible. I really, really encourage you to go out and listen to it on the podcast. One of the best messages that we've had here at Church 214. And Phil did an incredible job of reminding us a couple things. One, that we have to remember what our identity is if we're going to live in a countercultural society. And we have to remember who we are, and even more importantly, whose we are. Who we are, but also whose we are. So we're going to continue this week. If you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app, go ahead and get to Daniel. We're going to start at Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to continue looking at how Daniel navigates being in a foreign land, with a foreign serving foreign kings, and constantly needing to remind himself as he wades upstream through the culture that is at odds with his faith at every turn. So if you get to Daniel... Pray with me, Father God. We just ask that you would be with us in this place today, Lord. Lord, we know that you are. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say, Lord. That you would just cause all of the distractions in our mind and in our hearts to be placed on hold as we listen to your word, Lord. We thank you for a time and a place to come and worship you, Lord. Until. Worship alongside those that we call our brothers and sisters. or right, we love you, Lord, right, and we thank you for all you've done in your name. So Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> we're going to go through Daniel chapter 4, 5, and 6, and we're going to start in 4. So King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. Daniel has been placed in a position of um, just ability to, to give insight into the kingdom and into King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is this, he has this dream of a a large, huge tree, a massive tree that covers all the earth. It's full of leaves, the Bible says, and, and tasty fruit. And the animals, all the animals of the world, live and feed under its shelter. And then in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, A holy one comes down and and commands that the tree be cut down. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is frightened and upset by this. And so he calls on his wise men and his wise men come and they like, man, we don't know. And he says, okay, bring out Daniel. Let's have Daniel come out. So Daniel comes out and Daniel proceeds to interpret the dream. And Daniel steps forward and in verse 27 He tells King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. So he's kind of telling him what this dream is about and then gives him this advice. He says, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor and perhaps you will continue to prosper. Well, when I was reading this, one thing that kind of came to mind is, you may or may not experience this, but I know both for myself and for a number of people in my life, we're seen as people that other people will come and ask for advice and counseling from. And it happens quite routinely. People come, especially for me in my workplace, and they'll say, hey, Kip, um, I've got this issue. What, what do you think about it? Mostly personal issues. And so I generally try to listen to them and take that in and then give them godly advice to the best of my ability. And I know there's a number of people in my life that, that also do the same. And Nine times out of ten, that person will go and do either the exact opposite of what we just advised them to do, or they won't do anything at all. So, if you're in that boat, you're in good company because Daniel feels the same way. He gives advice, and it's not listened to. But eventually, King Nebuchadnezzar is chased from rule. Uh, The dream comes true, and he loses, the Bible tells us that he loses his sanity. He's chased into the wilderness. He loses authority over his kingdom, and he lives like a wild animal for a period of seven something, assuming seven years, but it's a a period of seven. And during this period, like I said, he's in the wilderness. He's eating grass like a wild animal, and he's just generally kind of crazy. But then, after this period of time, King Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes that he is not the end-all be-all. In verse 34, it tells us, After a time had passed, this is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking, says, After a time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked to the heavens. My sanity had returned, he had gone crazy, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the One who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and His kingdom is eternal. All of the people of earth are nothing compared to Him. Guys, this is a guy, this is the guy who was arguably the most powerful and influential man on the face of the earth at this time, saying this. So it's a big deal. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by these things? No, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All of his acts are just and true and is able to humble the proud. So that's what verse, excuse me, chapter four is all about. King Nebuchadnezzar having his pride humbled. So following, so now we're into chapter 5, following King Nebuchadnezzar. He is followed by King Belshazzar. Now, if you remember from last week when Phil uh, talked to us in chapter 1, when the people of Judah were conquered by the Babylonians, they took many or all of the valuables from the temple. And some of those, valuables were the gold and silver plateware that were in the temple. So to give you the, I was trying to think of an example of why this is a big deal. And this is this is a very small example. But so my mom, my mother-in-law has photo albums. She spent her whole life chronologically adding these photo albums of every event that's happened and <laughs> in, a, in a good way. And arguably probably the most irreplaceable item in her home. And so it would be as if somebody came into her home, took all those photo albums, and then disrespectfully took them back to their house and just threw them in the basement just for later in case they needed them at some point. That's kind of what's happened here. Babylonia was a wealthy, wealthy kingdom. They conquered the people of Judea, and now they've taken all their valuables and just kind of thrown them in the basement for future purposes, along with all the other gold and silver and valuables that they have collected from conquering other nations. And so it's during this uh, backdrop that King Belshazzar decides to throw just a wicked huge party. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that Babylonia at this point is under siege by the Medes. And so the Medes are literally surrounding Babylonia. It, it would be as if like the cops were at your house and you're like, hey, let's throw a party as they're getting ready to beat the door down. And that's what makes it exceptionally arrogant is, is that he his whole kingdom is surrounded. He's about ready to fall. His kingdom's about ready to fall. And he decides to throw a party. This massive, massive party. And one of the things that he does during the party is he commands his servants to bring the gold and silver plateware that they had stolen from the conquered people of Israel and bring it out. And they're going to drink and eat from this silverware. Now, later, this event is correctly named the Feast of the Fall of Babylonia because that's what it was. This was the last feast. And so during this feast, King Belshazzar sees a human hand at some point in the evening right on the temple walls, meeny, meeny, tekel parson. And it's it's a human hand without an arm or a body, and so he rightly gets freaked out. And the Bible tells us that he gets so freaked out that he's literally like his knees are shaking in fear. And so he calls all the wise men and women to his counsel and they can't interpret what the words mean. And so as is the narrative in Daniel, they call Daniel out to interpret. And the reason that they call Daniel out is because Belshazzar's mother makes a recommendation. Moms are great at making recommendations like this. And so she says to Dan, excuse me, says to Belshazzar, there's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, wisdom like that of the gods, like Phil had shared, just just a a guy that had all the qualities that you you and I want to have. Nebuchadnezzar made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers, so on and so forth. This man Daniel has exceptional abilities. Call him out, he'll interpret these words. And so, once again, Daniel's called out, and he reveals to King Belshazzar what the words mean. He says in verse 25, This is the message that was written, mini mini tekel parsin, and this is what the words mean. You have been numbered. God has numbered your days, and your reign is about to be brought to an end. You have been weighed on the balances, and you have been found to not measure up. And your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And so chapter 5 ends with King Belshazzar being killed that very night, and Darius the Mede taking over the kingdom and the rule of Babylon. So chapter 6. Now, when Heather shared with us that we were going to be going through Daniel and we were going to do it in kind of a chronological order, I was like, please get chapter 6. Please get chapter 6. And if you want to know why chapter 6, and if you're not familiar, chapter 6 is the chapter about Daniel and the lion's den. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that every children's book, probably on the planet, has this story in it. There's other books, books, children's books about the Bible that have this story in it. And even if you're not familiar, you've probably heard some version or variation of Daniel and the lion's den. So if you're not familiar with it, quickly, I'll kind of recap. So Darius the Mede takes over for King Belshazzar. And he actually has somewhat of an affinity for Daniel. And so he puts Daniel in a a role of authority within his kingdom. And all the other administrators in King Darius's administration, though, they're not fans of Daniel. And so they come up with this plan and they take it to King Darius so that if Daniel has praise, he will be thrown into a lion's den. So it goes on to say here, so the administrators and high officials Went to King, went to King Darius, and said, "Long live the king! We are all in agreement, i.e., we have all conspired. We, administrators, officials, and high officers and governors, that the king should make a law that strictly that is strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next thirty days, any person who prays to anyone divine or human, except for to you, your Majesty, will be thrown into a den of lions." They do this knowing that Daniel will not stop praying. And we'll come back to this in just a minute. So once again, Daniel is at odds with the laws of the land he finds himself in. And he's in a situation where he must decide if he's going to yield to the pressures of the culture he's in or keep to his convictions. And so as we expect, Daniel is caught praying. He's caught violating the law. And he's thrown into the lion's den to meet his possible demise. So, you see, if you're not already aware, we too live in a culture today that many of our beliefs and our faith is at odds on our culture on many issues. We continue to live in a culture where the lions are free to prowl around. And, like Daniel... If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you too are living in a land that is not your own. So living in this culture, living in this land and time and place that we do now, where we're constantly challenged on our faiths and our beliefs, we can and do become targets. You become prey of the lions that are out there looking to make you a target in our culture. And as I was thinking about this, I came across this great quote from Stephen Furtick in his book, Greater. It says, thieves do not break into empty houses. They don't try to tackle you on the field if you're not the one carrying the ball. So if you are under attack, that means you must be carrying something good inside. The fact that you are vulnerable or a prey proves that you are valuable. The fact that you are vulnerable proves that you are valuable. So what are the lions in our culture today? What are the things and the people that attempt to take us off course would have us go this way, the way of culture, the way of popular ideas? Well, I thought the best way to do this would be to come up with an acrostic. And if you're thinking... Is it 1999? No, it's not 1999. But I thought that an acrostic would be a great way to illustrate this. So we're going to dive into this with the last uh, time that we have here tonight. I'm going to go through it quickly. Uh, But the acrostic is lion. And we're going to dive into L. L. L is for leaders. Now, you're probably thinking, what do you mean by leaders, Kip? Because that doesn't sound like the type of people that would cause us to go off course. So hear me out. Leaders, you either have probably a good experience with leaders or a bad experience with leaders. You might have both. Good leaders are hard to come by. Great leaders are exceptionally hard to find. And here's the truth. Not everyone is mentally and especially spiritually equipped to be a leader even if their title indicates otherwise. There's some areas of our lives where leaders would cause us to go off course. And when I'm talking about leaders, really what I'm talking about here is anybody in a position of authority in your life, whether that is truly a leader, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a politician or somebody within the field of law enforcement. Leaders can be great, But leaders can also cause us to go off course. Now, generally speaking, as Christ followers, we're called to be obedient of the law. We're called to respect authority. We're called to um, not cause disorder. And that is all true. And there's ample references in the Bible where you can follow through and read on that. But, and this is a big but, in some instances, Obviously, in the absence of godly and moral values and under the abuse of authority and persons in government, we have to make a decision. A perfect example of this would be in Acts 4, 19 and 20. So Peter and John are preaching in the Sanhedrin and those in authority come and they say, hey, you can't do that. That's against the law. And they reply and say, do you think we're going to obey you over God? You can't stop. We cannot stop telling about what God has done and what we've seen. So, in some instances where the law or what your leader or person of authority has you going directly against what you know the truth to be, those are the instances and you have to measure those out and figure out and and I would love to say Here are the instances, but it's not that cut and dry. You have to weigh each one and you have to go, okay, I know this to be truth. I know this to be the word of God. And in this instance, this leader, this authority wants to take me off track. So, again, generally speaking, we should follow and be under authority, except for in the instances where that authority causes us to be directly in opposition of authority. We saw this in Daniel. The law said that he was not to pray to anyone other than King Darius. And yet he knew the truth. And so he had to deviate from that. Now, I is a is a different story altogether. Now, if I gave you a couple minutes, you could probably come up with I. But I is for income. Now, I'm going to try to tell this story as quickly as possible. And I'm going to try to tell it in a way that... Comes across as humble as possible. So, hear my heart when I tell the story. I'm not being boastful. I'm not trying to say, look at me or my family, other than I need to set the stage for the scale of what we're talking about. So, my parents divorced when I was five, my brother was three. We didn't have a lot of money. We were, you know, an average family. We lived in Morton, two bedroom house. I don't know how big it was. It was probably, you know, eight or 900 square feet, something like that. My parents divorced. And because we didn't have a lot of money, once you go through a divorce, you have even less money. And so as it was with my dad, he moved to Bloomington and he got a, an apartment, a basement apartment. If you have a basement apartment, you know those aren't the best apartments. And so my brother and I, every other weekend would go and we would stay with him. And again, he didn't have a lot of money to the fact that all of his furniture were, was furniture that he actually picked up off the curb. It was stuff that was about to be thrown away. To the extent that the bed that my brother and I slept in was a mattress on the floor with a sheet on it that he had picked up off the curb somewhere. And we slept on that bed for a, a number of years, actually. But fast forward, my mom gets remarried. She marries a, um, a wonderful man that I love and respect. Uh, he was in medical school, went on to become a physician, and the pendulum swung to the far other end of the spectrum. About my middle school years through high school, we wanted for nothing. I mean, we lived in a 11 or 12,000 square foot home, had four or five cars at any given time. I graduated from high school and received a brand new vehicle for my graduation present. So I tell you this to say that I've been on one end of the spectrum all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Then, fast forward, Heidi and I get married, we sell said car to pay bills, and we moved into a 480 square foot house that actually used to be a garage that got converted to a house. We actually called it our gingerbread house. And then, again, the pendulum swings and now we're blessed to the point I have a great job. We're able to afford for Heidi to stay home and raise our three littles and So the pendulum has swung to the other side. And the point of telling this story is, is that with income, we live in a culture that tells us all the time, chase money. Your most important act is to make more money. And I can tell you with a fair degree of authority, because I've lived on both ends of the spectrum, that money does not buy you anything other than your basic necessities as long as you have a roof over your head, clothes for you and your family, and food to eat, everything else is just trouble. They say, <laughs> the, the, the wise uh, philosopher um, once said that uh, more money, more problems, if you don't get that reference. He was not a wise philosopher. More money, more problems. It's not more money, more problems. It's more money, just different problems. You know, I can remember one time after Heidi and I had been married, we were stressed because our water heater had broke and we were going to have to pay a few hundred dollars. And that was a lot of money to us. And my parents were stressed because their $20,000 fountain out front needed repair and it was going to cost a few thousand dollars. It's all in perspective. And you have to realize that more money is just going to be different problems. O is for occupation. Now, you might say, Kip, isn't occupation and income the same thing? And the answer is no. Occupation is different because for some people, it's not about the money. It's about the job. It's about this elitist status stumble that they get because of their job. And men are especially bad at this. Oftentimes, we'll say, hey, who's that guy? And somebody might respond, oh, he's an electrician or he's a physician, or he's an engineer, or he sells computers for a living. The point is (laughs) that we are not what we do. That is not who we are. We are the sons and daughters of the king. We do not get our identity from where we report to work from nine to five. Can I tell you the truth? That job was there before you got there. It's gonna be there after you get there, and nobody's gonna care that you work there in 100 years from now. I don't care if you think that you're the most important person that that company has ever had and that XYZ Corporation will not be able to function tomorrow if you don't report to work at 7.30. It's not the truth. They'll move on without you. They'll find another person to replace what you did. Our identity is who we belong to, as Phil said, and we belong to God. He made us, he breathed life into us, and he has a far greater purpose for our lives than selling computers or building buildings or building tractors or doing whatever it is that you do every day. Lastly is in. In is for narcissism. And I don't think that I have to tell you that we live in a narcissistic culture. We live in the selfie period In a hundred or a thousand years from now, I'm sure historians will call this the selfie period. To give you an idea of the size and scope, 93 million selfies are posted online daily. And not to pick on millennials, but you compromise the majority of those 93 million, the average millennial worldwide spends over an hour every day managing or posting pictures of themselves online. So what does God have to say about this? Well, believe it or not, uh, the Bible uh, came well before the iPhone, and so there isn't a lot that it says about selfie specifically. But the Bible does talk quite clearly about the heart condition that breeds the selfie mindset. The great, one of the great examples of this is the story of John the Baptist. John the B- Jesus referred to John the Baptist as one of the greatest in the kingdom and yet John the Baptist says no I must become less so that he can become more John's life was the antithesis of the selfie culture he stepped back and said no it's all about Jesus And so as it is with everything in our lives whether it's a selfie or anything else that elevates us to the position of focus, we need to be reminded what the Bible tells us that our self-worth doesn't come from how many likes we get or how many people follow us, but by God alone. So there it is. Lion. Not an extensive list of items. It's a good start. There's many more. But the lions of our culture, all of them are praying and prowling around looking to devour us if we give them the opportunity. I'm not the first one to say this, but it's a great reminder. Satan isn't going to come in a red cape with horns and a pitchfork. Satan is going to come as the manifestation of all the desires of your life. Whether... That's a a higher status at work. Some sort of increased pay raise. Trying to get hundreds or thousands of followers on social media. Or maybe it's just a position of authority or leadership in the organization you lead. He's going to position himself as that is what your need is. And if we fall for it, we just start to go in line with the culture that we're a part of. But... To be countercultural, we need to stand up against what our culture tells us we should want or need. Our history as Christ followers, the history of Jesus in the the New Testament and the Gospels is the cornerstone of being countercultural. Jesus was countercultural in everything that mattered. And so we too must align ourselves with the word of God and set ourselves apart in the culture in which we live. Will you pray with me? Father God, we again just thank you for the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing here. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see things from your view, whether it's our families or our positions at work, the organizations that we lead, the jobs that we report to. Lord, we just ask that you would give us your perspective on what's important. Give us the perspective of the one who is above all others. Lord, you would cause us to be in a culture, to be the light of the world that you have called us to be, but at the same time, that light would not be one that aligns itself with the culture, but has something that's different, something that draws people to you, Lord. Lord, we just pray that as we go through this story of Daniel, that we will see and absorb just his, his desire to be a part in his culture and that we would apply it in our lives, Lord. Lord, we thank you for these things. Lord, we pray that you would bless this church. In your name we pray. Amen.